From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch, friends. So glad that you are with us today. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am filling in for Tony today. And it's my pleasure to do so as we mark what may be, I don't know if this, anybody keeps records of this, but uh, this may be the week in which the most federal spending has ever been proposed in a single week in U.S. history. Uh, I don't know if that makes this special or not, but I think that's what we have just experienced. And we are going to uh, break down a lot of what President Biden had to say in his speech, his proposals. Uh, we're going to talk about that today. What does this mean for you and your family? But first, uh, you can find the show, of course, at TonyPerkins.com. You can follow Tony at, at Tony underscore Perkins. Encourage you to do so. And also, download the Stand Firm app at the App Store and on Google Play so you can get all of FRC's resources directly to you on your phone. Now, today in the program, we are going to talk about, in addition to uh, the first 100 days of Biden, we'll continue to kind of deconstruct that. We're going to talk about the education system specifically. What is the Biden administration prioritizing for your child's education. Um, you want to stay tuned because you might not like the answer, but it's important that you know the answer anyway. And toward the end of the program, we are going to think biblically about religious freedom. Is it really just a license to discriminate? Is it actually selfish for people to want religious freedom because other people don't like it? Uh, we're going to think biblically about religious freedom with David Clausen at the end of the program. But now, as we, uh, President Biden is now officially past his first 100 days in office, and he and his administration have been keeping busy. The president's first 100 days have been marked with really radical, aggressive, anti-life, anti-family, and anti-freedom actions that have already cemented him as perhaps the most far-left president ever. And you need no more proof than that than the fact that uh, AOC has uh, been pleasantly surprised and, and by the progressive nature of the administration. But he defends his really kind of radical economic policy by saying that this is how he's going to create a lot of jobs, it seems. And he really prioritized this in the speech, and I wanna to listen uh, to just how many times he said he focused on this issue. Uh, go ahead and play that. And the process will create thousands and thousands of good paying jobs. The American Jobs Plan will help millions of people get back to their jobs and back to their careers. The American Jobs Plan is going to create millions of good-paying jobs, jobs Americans can raise a family on. And it raises revenue to pay for the plans I propose and will create millions of jobs that will grow the economy. What I'm proposing will help create millions of jobs and generate historic economic growth. And consensus is if we act to save the planet, we can create millions of jobs. Millions and millions and millions of jobs. That apparently is what Joe Biden is going to do for us. And of course, if that happens, we will all be happy. Uh, with us to talk about that proposal, whether it's actually going to materialize, is Congressman Mike Kelly of Pennsylvania. He is the ranking member of the House Subcommittee on Oversight. Congressman, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Joseph. Thanks for having me. Well, we're glad to have you, and, and we're dying to know, do you think that Joe Biden is really on the path to creating all these millions and millions of jobs that we keep hearing about? You know, I, I don't think it's hard to, to figure out what path uh, President Biden is on. He went from creating thousands and thousands of jobs to millions and millions of jobs. He talks about a new source of energy, and they 
you know, this idea, and I think it's fine to dream about our future energy uh, needs and, and talking about let's not let's not turn back on everything that's about. I mean, we have so much available to us. But the, the question is, so why would America turn her back on all that's below? We have incredible stores of fossil fuels. We have the ability to be the leading exporter of energy in the world, going back to our standards, our old standards of oil and coal and natural gas. We are abundant with these gifts from God. But all of a sudden, that, well, that's just not good enough. We need to create thousands and thousands and millions and millions of jobs. And what the president hasn't said, in order to do that, we've got to put millions and millions and thousands and thousands of people who are currently working out of work and telling them, look, all you have to do is go back to school and just learn about these new opportunities and you'll be all right going into the future. And also, he always lays the burden on it's not going to affect you. We're going to be taxing the wealthy. We're not going to put that burden on your shoulders. I would just say that that story has been so, told so long and so often in the past that we know now. That's a fairy tale. Look, America's greatness lies not just in the stores of energy, but also in the energy of its people. Americans have always risen to meet whatever challenge there is. That's why we're the greatest country in the world, and that's why thousands and thousands and millions of people have come across oceans and deserts to get to America. And so you look at all of this that's being talked about right now and say, my goodness, where did these people grow up? Where did they go to school? What in the world is taking right. place right now in America? It is so counterproductive to who it is we are as a people. Uh, I think you make a good point, and, and Congressman, you're, the idea that this this retraining we're gonna we're just gonna re-engineer uh, economies and communities just because we want to. I actually grew up in a in a former logging town on the coast of Washington State, and during the eighties. In early 90s, we went through that, and we had signs in our yard saying spotted owl tastes like chicken because the Environmental Protection Agency at that point was threatening to them dozens of lumber mills that were the really the backbone of the economy, and ultimately the spotted owl and the EPA won. And uh, the town I grew up in has never recovered from that, and I think there are many examples of the fact that when you just try to when you shut down somebody's economy it doesn't recover as as quickly as the government tells you it's going to recover uh when they're when they're pushing those proposals what do you think is the response to what he's trying to do specifically on the energy front well i, I think for most of us and depending on how long we've been on the face of the earth and how long we've been in america we look at who who, who we are as a people where we are as a country and understanding that the assets that we have are gifts from God. I think at some point, you look at what these people dream of and think what they really want to do is change America. They want to change America to something we will not recognize. Uh, their ideas are, are really so far to the left. And when you tell people, look, you can actually, with our policies, you're not going to have to work on an education to be ready you for jobs that are available in America today where you can make a great living, raise your family, support your churches, support your, your the towns that you live in. And other they, they come up with this dreamscape uh, that they talk about that really is nice to talk about. These dreams are wonderful to have, but I'm always faced with the cold reality of what life uh, is about and saying, you know what, this is what we know to be true. We have watched our growth. We have watched our ability to defend freedom and liberty across the globe. We are the first responders to any type of a disaster that takes place. We're the first ones there. The only way we're able to do that is because we are in good position 
with our economy. We have the ability to help others who don't have the same assets, who do not have the same potential. America always first to respond in any type of a disaster. So the question would be, what's so bad about the America that we live in? And the folks on the other side will answer, well, everything. Don't you understand? We have been living a lie. That's not the America that the rest of the world sees. And I always say, if we're so bad, if we're so bad, why are thousands and thousands and millions of people doing what they can to get to America? We are the only country I know that contemplated putting up a wall to keep people from streaming in as opposed to putting up a wall to keep people from getting out. Uh, there's no other place like it in the world. Anybody that espouses any other type of a philosophy that somehow America is not as great as she says she is, I would just say, where else have you lived? And then explain to me why it is that everybody flocked to America. Why are we the greatest home for so many people? And again, it goes back to who we are. It's our Judeo-Christian beliefs that makes us great because we follow the Word of God. We just don't follow it. We live it every single day. And our total commitment is to all our brothers and sisters, not only in America but around the world. If they need us, we're there to help them. But the only way we can stay in that position is by staying strong economically, being able to defend ourselves against those who wish to dislodge us from that position, and always placing our faith in the Lord and saying, Lord, just help us get through this. We can do it. We can do it on our own, but we also need it with your help. So please give us the guidance. Amen. I, I feel like I should just wrap right there, but we actually have more time. So I'm going to keep going. But thank you um, for that. You've, As you've observed, the first 100 days of the Biden administration, what, what have you learned? Has this been better, worse, exactly as you expected? What's your take home from this? Yeah, you know, and, and again, that, this is so unusual uh, by a candidate who really didn't campaign, uh, who said that, well, people are saying I'm, I'm a socialist. Come on, look at me, guy. Oh, come on, man. You know I'm not. Look, at you know my whole life. You know who I am. You know I'm not going to espouse those type uh, of policies. And then all of a sudden he gets in office, and it's just exactly what we were afraid would happen. You know, what he's proposed so, so far, and now in addition to our budget, which is already – I think it's $4.8 trillion, okay? That's our budget that's proposed. The president of the United States, in his first 100 days, has proposed another $6.8 trillion in spending. That's not part of our normal budget, but this is what we're going to lay on. Joseph, that's $60 billion a day in his first 100 days. Good Lord, please, somebody put up a stop sign for this man. It's time to look at who it is that's responsible for all this spending, and it's hardworking American taxpayers. There's no other source of revenue. It comes out of people's pockets, the American people's pockets. And it's just so false to make it a statement, well, no, you don't understand. See, we're only going to go after those horrible corporations that are too profitable. We're only going to go after those really wealthy people. Uh, that's what we're going to go after. And this is the very fact that that's the way they define the American people. And I hate the term, well, uh, th these are middle-class people. Uh, these are I, No, no. In America, there's no such thing as class. There are middle-income people, and there are lower-income people. There are no low-class people in the United States. I want to make sure people understand that. When people start using that language and then saying that's what you guys are, you know, you don't have any respect for it. You're racist. You're white supremacist. No, 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 no. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. That's divisive. That is that. That's right out of, of the rules for radicals, uh, and, and it's just look. 
If the president is going to say he's going to spend money, understand that any time a politician says they're going to spend money, what they mean is they're going into your wallet, Mr. and Mrs. Taxpayer. They are going into your wallet to fund every single wish list that they have out there, and it's in their best interest of getting reelected. As an old saying, Joseph, and you know this, you can't beat Santa Claus. And too many of my friends actually believe that some of these things that are taking place are wonderful. And all I say from this, it's your money that they're giving you. They're not giving you any other money than the money that they're going to back tax you for. So if you think that's a gift, it's not. It's You're going to get the bill. It's going to be sometime in the future. But when it's hit, you're going to hold your, your head. Oh, my goodness, I wish somebody had told me that they were going to take it out of my pocket and give it to me. But it's just it just doesn't make sense. And, again, people have to wake up. You made a statement earlier, and I, I fully agree with it. The most important position in any community in our country are the people serving on our public school boards. Please, folks, please. Get involved. Take a look at who's running your school. I sat in the school board for four years. I had no idea who in the world picked the textbooks that we were using. I had no idea who was developing the curriculum. When you asked that question, they were the department heads. I said, no, who has oversight over the department heads? This is called a public school. The public funds it all. The public has oversight over it all. And I'm sorry, please, please, please. Get involved in your public schools because they are filling our children's heads and have for almost 70 years with this terrible, terrible philosophy from the far left. And even our own children start to wonder about, is this really the America that my grandpa went to war for? Is this really the America that my grandma raised us in? What is going on? Please, folks, get back in your school boards. Drive the policy that you know is healthy for America. Congressman Mike Kelly, thank you so much. We're going to talk about education after the break. Today, moral relativism and political correctness are assaulting truth. How can the world have hope when believers themselves aren't clear on the authority of the Bible? The Church of Jesus Christ always faces a tremendous temptation to deviate from the Word of God. The God who speaks clearly expresses God's intent in giving us His Word and the response that is demanded of those who hear. Nobody ever encounters God and says, that was boring and irrelevant. When people say that about the Bible, it just says to me, they've not encountered the God of the Bible. Our faith is rooted in history, and and consequently we need to use the evidence and never be afraid of it. The God Who Speaks is a feature-length documentary from the American Family Association which could bolster your confidence in the Word of God. Churches really need to see this, really need to understand what the Bible actually is. Available now at thegodwhospeaks.org. Here's a moment of Hope for Your Home with Jerry and Becky Drace. Be careful where you walk. Listen to Proverbs chapter 1. Verse 10. My son, if sinners, that's foolish people, entice you, do not consent. Let me ask you, have you ever fallen into a hole while you're walking? Just minding your own business and all of a sudden, bam, there it is. You fall into it. Foolish people can be very enticing. They may sound good and what they're suggesting may seem good, but you need to teach your children to be careful to whom they listen and certainly who they follow. It may be enticing to follow a voice or a crowd, but it takes courage to make the right choice. The hole may be deeper than it looks. Learn more about the ministry of Jerry and Becky Drace, including evangelism with integrity, devotions, articles, and more at hopeforthehome.org. 
This has been a moment of hope for your home. In churches, and a lot of churches today, the issue of identity is sort of like the big elephant in the room. It's in the news, but it's not in the church. So if it's in society, it needs to be something the churches are addressing. In His Image, delighting in God's plan for gender and sexuality, is now available for church screenings and events. Every person in America needs to see this. And all pastors need to show this to the church, get the people informed. If the church and Jesus isn't the answer, where's the world going? We want the message of the film to touch as many hearts and lives as possible. And we'd love to join with you to bring the film to your community. So let's say you have a small group or your church, or we've even been bringing the film into some prisons. We want to partner with you. So what we'll do is we'll send you a special kit and it's completely free and it'll just have some extra resources to help you promote your event. To find out more about how to host an event, go to inhisimage.movie and click on the host an event tab. That's inhisimage.movie. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph back home sitting in for Tony today. Uh, this segment, our last segment with uh, Representative Mike Kelly, it, uh, we, we just ran out of time. He was on fire and really appreciate his enthusiasm, but he gave us a great segue into this next topic on education. Uh, yesterday, the U.S. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell and more than 30 members of the Senate Republican Conference sent a letter to U.S. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona requesting the withdrawal of the department's proposed priorities on American history and civics education. As we've reported previously here on Washington Watch, the department's proposed new rule establishes priority for grants to, uh, quote, projects that incorporate racially, ethnically, culturally, and linguistically diverse perspectives. Now, that rule goes on to cite and praise the New York Times 1619 project, as well as the work of a lot of critical race theorists, uh, citing them in really positive ways, which is, of course, a problem. In their letter yesterday, Senate Republicans said the proposed priorities double down on divisive, radical, and historically dubious buzzwords and propaganda. With me now to talk about this pushback on CRT is one of the newest members of the FRC team, Meg Kilgannon, who is our senior fellow for Education Studies. Meg, welcome to the team and welcome to Washington Watch. Oh, thank you so much, Joseph. It is such a joy to be back at Family Research Council. I'm so excited to start this work again. Well, we are so glad to have you. Tell us about the letter that the Senate Republicans sent yesterday to the uh, Secretary of Education. Well, it it was uh, a great letter. It was it was a really a, a great um, summary of the the all the things that are wrong with this kind of thinking about about addressing the issue of race in America today. Um, it. A lot of people talk about critical race theory, and it's one of those things that is difficult to define, and, and so it's really hard to respond to, and this letter did a great job of summarizing it. But for our listeners, I just would like to just sort of explain critical race theory just a bit. It, it, it's, it's the idea that racism is the ordinary state of affairs in society, and so it's, it means that you don't have to ask if racism took place, but how did racism manifest itself in this situation? And so knowing that, you can see why a letter like this is so necessary for the Republican leadership to send in response to this move by the Department of Education. Yeah. I mean, 
the, the Department of Education isn't supposed to involve itself in matters of curriculum. That's by law prohibited. So it's very troubling that they're taking this route. It, it seems increasingly that's all the Department of Education and kind of the education <laughs> engineers want to do. They're not so much interested in uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic anymore. It's, it, it's all about worldview. And for me, the critical race theory is, is this, in, in education question is, do we want our children being taught that they are racist and everyone around them is racist? Is that helpful? Is that beneficial? Of course, sin exists and, and racism does exist, but most elementary school kids don't think that way. You kind of have to be programmed that way. And, and I, I'm not sure it's constructive. Now, Meg, Mitch McConnell, who signed on to this letter, um, is not typically kind of we don't look to him as like the leader on the cultural issues i have a question do you think the fact that he's stepping out and kind of asserting himself in this way is this an indication that the that he he and and those like him see this issue as increasingly important or do these do they see this as a politically advantageous issue to push front and center well i think it might be both uh you know it it is an incredibly important issue and our schools are just eaten up with this nonsense and and it's not just the schools in the big blue cities and blue states it's everywhere it's everywhere and so um it really is important to talk about it and right now because so many people because president trump issued the executive order on critical race theory in the last year of his administration and because that opened up the door for other people to really engage on this topic. Uh, now that's created momentum. And now you see that the Republican conference is coming along with this great statement to, to move this conversation forward. Yeah. Speaking of great statements, Senator Tim, Tim Scott gave the response from the Republicans to Biden's speech. And he talked about this issue. And I want to listen to that for a moment and then give you a chance to respond. A hundred years ago, Kids in classrooms were taught the color of their skin was their most important characteristic. And if they looked a certain way, they were inferior. Today, kids are being taught that the color of their skin defines them again. And if they look a certain way, they're an oppressor. From colleges to corporations to our culture, people are making money and gaining power by pretending we haven't made any progress at all. By doubling down on the divisions, we've worked so hard to heal. You know this stuff is wrong. Hear me clearly. America is not a racist country. It's backwards to fight discrimination with different types of discrimination. And it's wrong to try to use our painful past to dishonestly shut down debates in the present. Meg Kilgannon... That was Senator Tim, Tim Scott, of course, uh, from South Carolina. How does that compare with what the Department of Education is proposing for our kids? It, the, the, the remarks from Senator Scott, of course, are beautiful and, and strike a chord with really anybody listening to that can identify with what he is saying, right? That that. It, it, it is wrong to fight discrimination with just a different kind of discrimination. And what that what the example of that in school is when students are separated by race and asked to reflect upon their privilege or their oppression. That's the kind of thing that's going to happen if the Department of Education moves forward with this with this 
priority and starts funding grants based on these ideas like those in the 1619 project. And no parent is sending their child to school, public, private or otherwise, to, to have that kind of teaching, uh, uh, you know, put forward to their children. I, I think you're exactly right about that. No parent is sending their kids to school for that. And, and, and the point that Senator Scott made there is this idea that we used to teach kids that they were problematic in one way because of the color of their skin. Or some kids used to learn that. Now we're just saying you're problematic in a different way. That's not really an improvement. And and what we need to find, it's I, I talk to my kids about this all the time. I say, are you are you fixing the problem or are you changing the problem? In this case, I think we're just changing the problem. And so we are gonna talk about this more after the break as well. We're gonna move beyond critical race theory and, and talk about some of the sexual curriculum as well with Meg Kilgannon right after the break. Come on back. Making the most of your money. Here's Dan Celia on American Family Radio. Well, it looks like we're looking at a mixed market for the last five days or so. We head into a new week with some very important economic data. But here's what I think going forward, at least for the next couple of weeks, earnings reports all come in about as good as what was expected, beating expectations in most areas. And we're seeing some of that money coming off the table and we're seeing the stocks drop. I think this is going to be somewhat of a trend for the next few weeks. I think we're going to continue to see people selling, saying, look, this is probably as good as it's going to get for a long time. I also see on the other side, some consumer staples picking up as people might want to start putting some of that profit in some defensive type positions, assuming that there could still be a downturn in the markets, or this could be the beginning of a correction. As we look at what to expect in the upcoming week, we've got the ISM manufacturing index on Monday. We get the ADP employment number, private sector jobs for the month of April on Wednesday, and the ISM service sector number, very, very important number, the service sector, the largest part of our economy. I believe we're going to start seeing that number tick up a little bit based on the manufacturing numbers if there is correlation. Productivity comes out the most important number of the week, in my opinion, and that is coming out for the first quarter. The last quarter of the year last year was down 4.2%. So we'll see what that looks like. Interesting couple weeks as we head into a slow summer trading season. Want to hear more financial advice from Dan Celia? Look for his podcast at AFR.net. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today, and we are talking with Meg Kilgannon, FRC's new Senior Fellow for Education Studies. And, and Meg, you came from the Department of Education. What did you learn while working in education that you think parents need to know about? Uh, it was an honor to serve in the Trump administration in the Department of Education, the honor of a lifetime. And um, it was my first time serving in government. And uh, there is a tremendous uh, force from Washington that uh, reaches out all across the country through the Department of Education. But at the same time, 
it was really remarkable to fully see the the limits of that federal power and the fact that state and local governments are really where the education business is handled. And they really are in charge of the nation's schools. The federal, you know, the federal Department of Education is distributing money to state and uh, local education agencies. And they're the ones who are spending that money. And fortunately, that's the place where we all live. And that's where we can get to those officials the easiest, right in our own states and in our own hometowns where we're sending our kids to school. So it's just so important for parents to be involved and to be aware of what is happening in your public school. Wherever your children are going to school, public or private, parents must be involved. Meg, this is not on the on the script necessarily, but I'm curious because we're talking about this. Do you think in light of your understanding and an appreciation for the fact that most education policy happens at the local level is there a real place for the federal government to be involved in education based on your experience well of course theoretically no but practically it most certainly is involved and we saw this very um we saw a great example of this with the um issue of of gender identity and transgenderism even though the department uh, the Department of Education rescinded that Obama guidance that sort of opened the door to boys in the girls' bathrooms and boys on the girls' sports teams and vice versa. Um, the, the Trump administration rescinded that guidance, but schools all across the country who wanted to go that way still pointed to the Obama guidance instead of the Trump administration guidance. So even though we, we would prefer that the federal government not be involved for, for so many good reasons, it is. It casts a long shadow, shall we say, over it states does. and localities. Yeah, no, so. that, that, that's a that's a fair way of putting it. And speaking of long shadows, uh, in addition to the, the critical race theory component that we discussed in the last segment, what are you watching now? What are you concerned about that the Biden administration might attempt to do through the education system? Well, one of the one of the things that happened in the Obama administration um, that the that the Trump team fought back was this weaponization of accreditation agencies. When you want to open a school or you are running a college, that college or or school has to be accredited. It, it you have to be shown to be doing your job right. And so these these very political and left wing accreditors who are running these agencies will try to use the the wedge of identity politics to to go after and undermine Christian institutions Mm -hmm. by saying, you know, that we're not serving the LGBT community or we're not, um, you know, diverse, equitable and inclusive enough. Um, And that I expect that to ramp up again, even though the Trump administration did a tremendous amount of work to to make safeguards for those schools and to to stop that kind of weaponization. Um, How how common is it for um for Christian institutions to be applying for accreditation and how how broad is that problem that they might be denied accreditation just because of what they believe? Um, it, in in previous years, it's it's been a real problem. I, I uh, when I was 
with with FRC previously. I participated in an event at Ohio Christian University, um, and they they had just opened up a master's degree program in education. And to get that accredited, there was a series of interviews, and they come and sit in on classes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they were eventually granted their their accreditation as they could not be denied it. They were certainly deserving of it. But the sorts of questions and um, just, you know, divisive conversations and just, just overly um, ag- aggressive and intrusive examination of the Christian universities is what is such a problem. And it's, it, you know, it's a matter of costing those universities resources that they should be spending on their students and, you know, doing the, the mission that they're there to do. You just get get bound up in these other uh, distractions that the accreditation agencies will that put you through the paces of. Not fair. Yeah. Well, and, and Meg, we continue to hear stories. It feels like most of them are out of California, but I know they aren't all out of California about things happening in curriculum, just teaching kids about, you know, gender identity issues and sexuality issues that most parents are just horrified by. Uh, what role, if any, will the Biden administration play in either stopping that from happening or allowing that to happen? Well, you know, that that first executive order that President Biden signed was on uh, gender identity and sexual orientation. He's they're they're ready to to make that happen as much as they can. Unfortunately, unfortunately indeed, and and we are going to continue to track that. But Meg, I want to go back to a point that you made: is we've got to get involved at the local level because. Things yeah. still do happen at the local level, and and frankly, Congressman Kelly made this point earlier as well. Get involved in your school board. Meg Kilgannon, yeah. so glad to have you on the team. I'm really looking forward to continuing this conversation. Thanks for your time today. Thank you so much. And coming up, stay with us after the break. We are going to switch gears a little bit to religious freedom, thinking biblically about religious freedom. Why is it such a toxic, difficult, challenging issue? And how do we think the right way about it? Right after the break. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed, so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org app and download, or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a sage con, but that's another story. Huh? Hello, I'm Gary Roby, host of Call to Worship, heard each Sunday on American Family Radio. This one-hour program will lead you in a special time of worship and praise. We will focus on God's Word, spoken, and in music. Call to Worship has a different topic each week as we glorify God together. Be sure to join us at 5 a.m. Central each Sunday for a Call to Worship right here on American Family Radio. 
American Family Radio newscasts are now available as a podcast. I'm Rusty Pugh. I'm Steve Jordahl. Didn't catch the full story? Listen to the podcast. I'm Chris Woodward. I'm Chad Groening. Didn't have the radio on at the top of the hour? Listen to the podcast. I'm Charlie Bunch. And I'm Fred Jackson. Get accurate news from a Christian perspective whenever you want it with the American Family News podcast. You can also sign up for our daily news brief. Visit onenewsnow.com. Usually, I will preach an annual series of sermons on financial stewardship. Money is such a volatile subject in our culture that we need a yearly reminder of God's principles for managing it wisely. But I'm seeing another area of critical concern in our society that also falls under the heading of stewardship, and that is the stewardship of our health. It took a serious health challenge in my own life years ago to remind me that I need to include my body as part of my stewardship responsibilities before God. I hope you'll join me in making vibrant health a high priority. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover what God expects of good stewards on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph back home, sitting in for Tony today, sending you into your weekend. And now I'm going to send you into your weekend with our good friend, David Clausen, who's the Director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council. David, welcome back. Oh, it's great to be back on the show with you, Joseph. So glad that you can uh, join me at the end of the week. It's just a great way, to, you know, you and I get to run into the weekend together all the time this week and for those who are might be uh, just catching this segment for the first time uh family research council has a segment that called the worldview wednesday on our blog at frc.org blog and you can find this week's column written by david it's how to think biblically about religious freedom and david you did a good job kind of breaking this issue down and we of course want to encourage Christians to think biblically about everything. But when you say thinking Christ biblically about religious freedom, what do you mean by that? How are you defining what religious freedom is? Yeah, no, it's a great question to start the discussion, Joseph. Um, and, you know, religious freedom is in the news, it seems like, constantly. I wanted to write about it this week uh, because of uh, a decision in Montana, actually, uh, last week to pass a bill uh, in that state to protect the religious freedom of those, uh, the people who live there. But as far as definitions, I think I can define it pretty simply. I define religious freedom as the freedom to hold religious beliefs of one's own choosing and to live in accordance with those beliefs. So, so it's, it's freedom to believe what you want to in terms of doctrine, in terms of theology, and the ability to order your life according to those deep convictions you have informed by your faith. Which is a great, I think, traditional definition of this. And, and I just want to get on the, on, um, you know, on the foundation of this conversation. It's the idea that basically people can not only think what they want, but they can do what they want, right? That religious freedom is not just merely the ability to think thoughts, is it? 
No, it's not. And that's an important distinction to, to make, Joseph, because in the Obama administration, actually, you began to hear the term often used, uh, freedom of worship. Uh, the former president used to, he started to use that quite a bit. And the reason that's, that's problematic is because freedom of worship implies you're free to worship God however you want, you know, within the four walls of your church or your synagogue or your mosque. But freedom of religion or, or religious liberty is just not, you just, it's not just the freedom to believe what you want to in terms of the Bible or, or, or scripture or theology, but to order your lives according to those sincerely held religious beliefs. And, and why that matters this week, and, and you mentioned the RIFRA, Religious Freedom Restoration Act legislation that was passed in Montana. And for those who um, might not know exactly what that is, what it does is it within a state, it says that the state cannot restrict someone's religious freedom unless, and then it proposes a legal standard, which is it has a, a compelling government interest there's a compelling interest in what the government's trying to do and the action that they're taking is narrowly tailored to accomplish that interest and that sets up a legal standard that has been part of american jurisprudence for a long time um and the supreme court created that um that that framework and then there was a case back in the i think it was in the uh, early 90s in, involving native americans who wanted to smoke peyote in their religious rituals in uh, in prisons and the supreme court says oh you can't do that as a matter of religious freedom and they actually lowered the standard in that case and then congress actually came back in the clinton administration to cr pass a federal rifra which didn't apply to the states and now a number of states have been independently uh, using that standard to to restrain state action against religious freedom. And in the meantime, since the Clinton administration and since today, uh, everybody used to agree that religious freedom was a good thing. Now the left politically thinks religious freedom is a bad thing. Um, and what they say, uh, and they, they think it is a bad thing generally, not in every case, but they of course push back on a lot of efforts for religious freedom because they say, David, that religious freedom is really just a license to discriminate. What's your response to that? That's simply not the case, Joseph, uh, that when those of us who are calling for protection of people's religious beliefs and to be able to live your life in accordance to your beliefs, it's simply not the case that that's discrimination. And I think the history that you just mentioned is so significant, and it shows how fast what we might call the cult culture wars have turned. You're absolutely right. And I think this is so important to, to mention, Joseph, when we're calling for religious freedom, this is not calling for special rights uh, for just Christians alone. When, we, when you and I argue for a robust form of religious liberty, this is for all people, religious and not, uh, across the whole spectrum of religious beliefs. But it's so interesting that it's become so divisive. Montana passed their bill last week, and yet 250 businesses, including huge corporations like Google, Amazon, Verizon, came out and opposed it. But that used to not be the case. Um, in 1993, when the, the federal version of the Religious Freedom Restoration was uh, uh, introduced and then ultimately passed by Bill Clinton, it's, it's stunning. That bill in the House of Representatives was actually introduced by then-Congressman Chuck Schumer. And in the Senate, it was introduced by the liberal lion of the Senate, uh, Massachusetts Senator Ted Kennedy. It passed the House unanimously in 97 to 3 in the Senate. And then Bill Clinton, obviously a Democrat, passed it into law. So this didn't used to be controversial. It's only become controversial 
because of the left pushing gender ideology and the whole push for LGBT rights. And that's where we find this budding of worldviews, this budding of ideologies. And unfortunately, that's why religious freedom, which used to be uncontroversial, has become so divisive in our society. And to expand on that, uh, I think, great point is uh, it's it's really the First Amendment now clashes with non-discrimination laws. The First Amendment was, of course, part of our founding documents. It's in the Constitution. It's literally the First Amendment because the Constitution does not have a right to be free from discrimination. It's not written in there anywhere. There's nowhere that says thou shalt not ever have your feelings hurt. Thou shalt be served by anybody that you want to. Um, that because the framers of our Constitution valued the free exercise of religion, which is why they put it in the First Amendment. More recently, cultural sensibilities have changed, and now we value um, being nice and never being offended and never having your feelings hurt. And this is a new phenomenon, and, and th that sentiment it has begun to be put into law in non-discrimination laws. Now, of course, everybody's sympathetic to the original non-discrimination law, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, to respond to the scourge of racism and slavery that was part of our history. But, of course, it's been expanded far beyond its original purpose and intent to now uh, have situations where a florist who doesn't want to decorate at a same-sex wedding is being you know, harassed for a decade by the attorney general of her state um, because of because of what her beliefs are. So there is this clash now that's happening between the First Amendment and religious freedom and these non-discrimination laws. What will win? And this clash, and David, you refer in your article to a pastor who referred to religious freedom as idolatry. Why do you think he said that? Yeah, it's a great uh, question, Joseph, and it's a pastor out in California who I have just the utmost respect for. I read his books and listen to his sermons, but I think there, I may, maybe, and I'm speculating a little bit, I think, you know, because religious freedom has become so divisive, um, his understanding of religious freedom maybe is just an understanding that we're just advocating for pluralism, that kind of anything goes, and you know, religious freedom is not telling when I, I'm a, I'm a, a, a convictional uh, Southern Baptist evangelical Christian and I hold those beliefs. When I'm advocating for religious freedom, I'm not compromising my own beliefs. I'm just saying that in a society that uh, we have multiple worldviews, multiple perspectives on the ultimate meaning of life, all we're asking for when we're asking for religious freedom is that we just have an equal playing field. And as Christians, we believe that the gospel, uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, we can share that and be persuasive. We don't need special privileges from the government or whatnot. Um, but that, that's what religious freedom does. It levels the playing field and allows all these competing claims uh, to go at it in the public square and may the most pers persuasive, uh, compelling uh, faith win out. And so that, that's why it's so important to do what we did earlier is to define what religious freedom is. Religious freedom is not saying that all religions are equally valid. That's not at all what it's saying. We're just saying uh, that everybody should be able to believe what they want in terms of doctrine and then order their lives according to those beliefs. I think the reality in the cultural debate is that it's, it's framed as, you know, the right-wing Christians who are advocating for religious freedom and the left-wing secularists and their quote-unquote allies, uh, and, and largely it's framed as the LGBT community because politically that's where a lot of the conflict is coming from. And so that's why – and because that's the dynamic that's set up, 
I've heard people even within the church ask the question, does that mean religious freedom is selfish? The fact that Christians are always advocating for religious freedom, basically for themselves, so they can do what they want to do. Does that mean that advocacy for religious freedom is selfish? Yeah, not at all. I think actually, Joseph, the, the, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which is a statement of faith that Southern Baptists subscribe to, gets it right when it says that a free church in a free state is the Christian ideal. And this implies, and it goes on to say, this implies the right of free and unhindered access to God on the part of all men. It's not selfish. And let, let me give you an example, Joseph. In North Korea, uh, they have no religious freedom. It's a, officially an atheistic state. And yes, there are Christians there, but they are persecuted. They are driven underground. The gospel is not allowed to flourish. Just across the border in South Korea where they have religious freedom, they have uh, great churches. They are able to have Bible studies. And just the quality of life is so much better. And so religious freedom, when you and I are advocating for that in the public square, we're just simply recognizing that religion uh, ultimately, when you when you boil down religion, religion itself is the search for truth about ultimate meaning. And you and I can't make that decision for someone else. We can advocate for our point of view, but ultimately, we make those decisions uh, on our own before God. And so I would actually say when we are advocating for religious freedom, we are being inherently selfless because we're not telling people to believe what we want them to believe. We're not forcing anybody to believe what we believe. We're just saying that we want everybody to be able to believe what they are what they are convinced of in their own conscience. So again, I think religious freedom is one of the most selfless things we can actually advocate for in the public square. And to agree with you, I think what what is implicated in this conversation is the idea that if you do not have religious freedom, the one constraining you is the government. And the reason why pushing back and defending religious freedom as a general principle is good for anybody is that the government that can take away your religious freedom is the same government that can take away my religious freedom. And a government that is restrained from depriving you of religious freedom is also restrained of depriving me. And it really is a question of how much power should the government have? Because either we can make these choices for ourselves or the government gets to make those choices for us. And once we empower the government to make those choices for us, they can make those choices for all of us. And the temptation is to think that, well, I happen to like the current government and I think they will make the choice. If I give them that power, they're going to use that power in a way I like. But that knife always cuts both directions. And eventually, if we empower the government that way, it will turn back on us just given enough time, which is why our framers in their brilliance just said we can't ever give the government that much power because it always comes back to haunt us. Now, David, I want to I want to switch directions a little bit because you started talking about in the, the segment, of course, and the and the article is thinking biblically about religious freedom. What does scripture have to say about this? Does does the Bible say thou shalt honor uh, religious freedom governments? Thou shalt exercise religious freedom? Yeah, it's a great question, Joseph. And, and no, it doesn't. There's no one verse that expressly demands religious freedom. You know, there's no 11th commandment, thou shalt have religious freedom. But I would argue that the concept itself is implicit on nearly every page. Uh, number one, I would say the interior nature of faith. Again, that relationship uh, that you have with God, that's 
only that's between you and God. No one can force you. At the point of a sword or a point of a gun, I can force you to say you believe something, but I can't actually affect the posture of your heart. I can't actually affect what you truly believe. That's between you and God. Scripture recognizes this. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the whole language uh, in the book of Acts, uh, Paul uses language of appeal and persuasion. He doesn't ever force anyone to believe. Jesus himself, uh, he never forced anyone to believe. He, he offered the gospel. He offered his message. And the one example I gave in the article, the rich young ruler, uh, Jesus let him walk away when he didn't want to follow Jesus because even Jesus knew you can't force anyone to believe. We can persuade, we can plead, uh, we can offer the truth, but ultimately that's a decision that everyone must make. And I think that's what you see Scripture recognizes, that our faith ultimately is between us and God. It's what I call the interior nature of faith. And, and just the language of appeal that the Bible uses. And so, again, maybe there's no chapter and verse I can point to, but I think that the concept of religious freedom is implicit on every page of Scripture, which is why believers uh, need to be advocates for it. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's not behold, I stand at the door with a weapon and, and a battering ram to knock down the door in the event that you don't want, uh, you don't want me to come in, right? And, and I, think, I think that's exactly right. That's how Jesus presents himself. Um, he, doesn't come, he doesn't force himself on us. Um, though, uh, and, and I'll also say, I, one of the reasons why religious freedom has always been threatened is that it's natural for humans— it, it, it's sectarian, it's ethnic, sometimes it's racial sometimes, to think of other ideas and other people as dangerous. And that's why we're inclined to take away their civil liberties, right? But I think what a biblical perspective about humanity and the nature of life on earth and, and, and eternity allows us is, is an appreciation of the fact that though our neighbor may be wrong in the ultimate sense, theologically, we never have to fear them because they don't have any ability to harm anything that actually really matters that much to us. So we don't have to compel our neighbors because they're not ultimately a threat to us because our eternity is secure. Do you think that's a healthy way of looking at that? I think it is, Joseph, and I think that's what Scripture teaches. And if anyone wants to hear more about this, we've actually written more about religious freedom from a biblical perspective at frc.org slash belief. FRC.org slash belief. David Clausen, really appreciate your wisdom and your time every Friday, and we look forward to doing it again next week. Thanks so much for being with us. Sounds good. Thanks, Joseph. And for the rest of you, just keep this in mind on these religious freedom conversations because we are going to, this is going to come up in your life. Why do you care so much about religious freedom? Why does it matter? And Christians are always not supposed to live for ourselves. We do live for other people. And we'll be back. See you next time. Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today, or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.